On today's episode, we're going to visit one of the most remote places in the world where you can ride a motorcycle, but just getting there is an adventure in itself. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hedstead. Dr. Gregor W. Frazee. Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmutz. Red Cat. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Glenn Hoskins. Joe Rice. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Jason Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hey, I'm Carol DeVell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. We've been getting some emails from listeners asking if there's any way to help the show out. So I thought I'd take the opportunity now to, to mention this. We're coming up on three years of producing this show. And frankly, we're humbled and honored by the reception and growth of our listener base. Each month, our numbers increase. Like last month alone, we had over 125,000 downloads in the month. And we're beyond, I think, 1.4 million downloads so far. It's incredible. And Elizabeth and I are so grateful to have you listening to the show. If you like what we're producing and you'd like to help out, we can certainly use it. We have ads on the show, but there's not enough to carry things through. And, And there's certainly not enough to expand on it. Like we've been in dire need of replacing our main computer Um, for a long time now. We've had a couple of generous donations that we've earmarked for it, but we need more. And we've also been renting an audio interface for, I think, more than a year now since ours quit. And we need to replace that. So bottom line is, if you want to help the show out, consider a donation. Drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the donate button. Um, We have several ways to accept donations, PayPal, credit card, Patreon. Patreon is a way to set up monthly donations, which is great. So you can pledge anything from a few dollars on up. And each month we receive your donation to help make the show. I have to tell you, it is a challenge to produce this show on the money that we bring in. The hours that go into this keep two of us very busy. Either way, Elizabeth and I really appreciate you listening to the show. And remember, we always have ARR Raw, our other show that we produce, Roundtable Talks about moto travel. Um, It's available through our website or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks very much. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. 
Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Australia is the second driest continent in the world, and most of Australia receives less than 500 millimeters of rain each year. That's just shy of 20 inches. As a result of the lack of moisture, there are 10 deserts in Australia. Yeah, 10 deserts. The Simpson and the Great Victoria Desert are the best known probably, but it's the Simpson that draws the attention from the four-wheelers and the motorcyclists that are looking for extreme adventure challenge for two reasons mainly. One, it's remoteness. It's extremely difficult to get there and it's very far from any civilization. And two, it's the most difficult to cross, mainly because of the massive sand dunes combined with the remoteness if you have any sort of problem. And you know, it's, it's interesting when it comes to these extreme challenges of any kind, whether we're talking motorcycling, mountain climbing, sailing, basically all types of adventure. The people that are drawn to those challenges often do it totally for personal reasons, you know, with, with no external rewards. They just want that satisfaction in knowing they did something extraordinary. And in today's case, with Stuart Ball, it's no different. He attempted to break a record for crossing the Simpson Desert east to west and then back again. The record was originally set about a year ago by a rider named Trevor Wilson. And when the dust settles, there's no reward, not even really a fanfare for Stuart, just the satisfaction in knowing that he accomplished something that few others would attempt. Now, to understand the enormity of this ride, you have to understand just how much desert we're talking about. The Simpson Desert is number four in order of size of the 10 deserts in Australia. That's right. It's sort of on the, in South Australia, the majority of the desert is in South Australia. Uh, and it sort of straddles into Queensland and a little bit of Northern Territory as well. That's Stuart Ball. Now, Stuart's probably best known for organizing what's called the Great Australian Ride. The Great Australian Ride is, is sort of an extreme motorcycle trip run as a fundraiser for a charity, and it spans Australia east to west, going directly through the Simpson Desert. So number four out of the ten deserts in order of size, the Simpson Desert is a massive area. Yeah, a massive area. There's... Um... A lot of dunes, you've got 1,100 dunes from Birdsville to Mount Dare. It's one of the largest sand deserts in the world. It's very dry. We're talking about a vast area covering 176,500 square kilometres or 68,147 square miles. That's a large chunk of space. That's about the size of Washington. It's larger than Illinois or Florida. It's about 18% the size of Ontario, Canada. And if you compared it to the UK, the Simpson Desert would cover around 73% of the UK. So we get it. It's huge. It's massive. But on top of that, it's located in a remote area in the heart of the continent. You can sort of access it from three or four different points. And it's always a bit of a mission to get to um, that area too, because there's, there's no bitumen roads that sort of lead to it. You get to a point where, say from Melbourne, you, you, you drive 
a thousand k's. You'll probably drive twelve hundred k's or so on bitumen, and after that, you've got another thousand k's of tracks, just just rough tracks to get to that area. So it's quite remote from any direction of Australia. I mentioned that motorcyclists like to ride the Simpson. In fact, many riders have crossed the Simpson Desert by motorcycle, but also many have been rescued after things went terribly wrong and their life was in danger. I mean, if you break down and manage to get help before you run out of water, which as you can imagine, is going to happen pretty fast with a motorcycle, a tow will likely run in the thousands of dollars if you're lucky. And also, the Simpson Desert has the longest set of parallel sand dunes in the world, 1100, as Stuart said. And the dunes themselves are spectacular both in size and color. They range from brilliant white to dark red to pink and orange. And then starting on the east side, they start out at a whopping 30 meters, which is just shy of 100 feet, and then work their way across. When you finally get to the west side, they're down around the 3-meter mark or just under 10 feet tall. So it's extremely remote difficult to get to. It's dry. It's a desert. And on top of all this, there's snakes. The world's most poisonous snake, the inland taipan. Its home is the Simpson Desert. Oh, and there's more than just snakes too, but more on that later. That was Sarah Taylor. Sarah is an avid rider that spends plenty of time riding her motorcycle through the desert and remote areas of the continent. Sarah is also a paramedic and, and she and Stuart are partners. And I'm speaking to them just days after the record-breaking attempt with Stuart riding his bike and Sarah monitoring his tracker from the internet site back in Birdsville where Stuart set off. Oh, and one other thing about this whole thing. Stuart did this run twice. He didn't make the first attempt, so a few days later, he gave it another try. And you got to remember, this is a trip that people may make once in a lifetime. It's a big trip. Sarah and Stuart, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Jim. you. Stuart, it's been a while since we've had you on, and Sarah, the first time for you. Great to talk to you both. You guys just returned from this record-breaking attempt of riding across the Simpson Desert, the toughest ride in Australia, maybe the world. Stuart, you riding your motorcycle, and Sarah staying behind his crew, monitoring your, your satellite tracker, and standing by in case there's any sort of trouble with the crossing. We know that the ride is very difficult through harsh and unforgiving terrain. 1,100 sand dunes that are starting out at 100 feet tall or 30 meters tall. And then, of course, there's all the other dangers that are associated with desert travel. So why on earth would anyone want to ride across something so remote and dangerous? Good question, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) There's been times I've asked myself that same question. But um, I think once it gets under your skin or the sand gets in your boots, it's hard to – it's just so peaceful. Um, It's very, very wild. The, The wildlife is fantastic. The people that live in that area too are, are wonderful. Um, so each year we're sort of drawn back with Gar. We go through there every year anyhow with the, the itinerary that we put together. Um, so, yeah, I think it just gets under your skin and you look forward to the, the quietness and, the, and how remote it is and how beautiful um, for sunset, sunrise. Uh, and it is a big tourist area too. For most people, any international tourist that comes to Australia, it's probably – one of the highlights for them uh, to come to Birdsville or Alice Springs and they can sort of see it from either point of view. For riding a bike in the desert, what sort of challenges? I mean, obviously you can have fuel and water. I mean, those things come to mind right away. Yeah, it's it's up there. It's, it's hard. Um, with, the, with the riding, obviously, it's, it's all sand. Um, and it changes from year to year. You're dealing with... Um, sometimes it's the tracks are really cut up by four-wheel drives, 
um, which proves its own problems. Other times, it's if you can get in there as soon as it opens. I think it opens around about the 28th of March. Um, so they hold a lot of events as well. So there's the Big Bash, the Big Red Bash, and other sort of events that are held there. So thousands of, of four-wheel drives are going through there, uh, which can cause um, a bit of difficulty really for, for – but it depends on the bike setup that you have, uh, water, fuel. You've got to take all of that in with you. So you've got to be very comfortable at riding a very heavy-loaded bike. Um, and – you need to be a competent sand rider as well before you go out there because it's so remote that, you know, it's not somewhere that you want to go just to try and learn to ride sand. You really want to be a competent rider before you get there because it's it's a tough place to learn and it'd probably be the one of the toughest uh, sand riding places within Australia. And um, it's so remote that if you hurt yourself or something happens with the bike, you have a breakdown with the bike, then it's a really tough time to get out of the desert. Uh, you may be stuck for days at a time before you have someone come past. A full drive might not come past for a few days. Um, and the logistics of getting someone out there to get you out of the desert is pretty significant, isn't it? It's, um, mm. it's quite a challenge for anyone to come out and save you. So, yeah, there's a lot of preparation that people need to do before they go out there, I think, as a rider, especially um, with their bike and themselves, to be ready to tackle such a crossing. What's the biggest uh, killer in the whole thing? The dryness, the, the lack of water, or scorpions? <laughs> <laughs> I've been lucky enough to never have to deal with any scorpions out there yet. <laughs> But the world's most poisonous snake, uh, the inland taipan, actually its home is the Simpson Desert or Central Australia. Oh, you're not so, serious. Um, it just gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to be pretty keen, Jim. <laughs> so, so hang on a second. You're going to ride to a place where if you go down, you've got to worry about this taipan. Is that what it is? Taipan snake? Yeah, the inland taipan. <laughs> Mm. you got the tigers as well. I think there's about 10, 10 deadly, 10 of the world's deadliest snakes live in that area. Is mm. that right? So now, now what is the chances? I mean, like I know we always talk about this stuff and I know for Australians, you guys are sort of cool about this, about the, the poisonous <laughs> aspect of things. But so what's the chances of, of seeing snakes while you're in the desert? Uh, well, I've seen two inland taipans while I've been out there, but they've both been small ones and they're quite timid uh, snakes. They don't – they're not too aggressive as long as you – they are not aggressive unless you're actually threatening them. Oh, I see. Um, so they tend, to, they tend to hide and they tend to – if you are around, then they'll quickly uh, slither away because they don't like humans. They don't like people or anything. So the chances of seeing them are quite slim, but the chances of being attacked by one are extremely slim. So that's a good thing. Now, this recent run that you've just done, this is a, a record attempt, or sorry, a record-breaking attempt that you guys did. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, sometimes the personal stuff gets in, in the way in the, during the year when I've got nothing else to do. So I like to push the bike myself, and we just sort of, uh, CCM Australia um, had the 450 GP at hand. It was a demo machine, and I've ridden it a couple of times, and I thought, you know what, we could probably break the record with this bike. Um, I'm from England anyhow, and, and I just sort of thought I was really connected. I loved the bike. I thought there was a, a strong, really strong future. Um, 
and I've seen it sort of grow in England and, and they're just sort of trying to get it off the ground and, and get as many units in Australia. So we took the bike out there. The first run um, was was extremely difficult. The, what you're dealing with is extreme fatigue. Like getting the cross wasn't too bad, although your body is um, physically shutting down. Like, well, um, Hang on, cramped. Stuart. I, I think you're getting ahead of things. You're, you're saying the first run, no, no one knows yet. You, you actually did two runs on this. So you, you did one record attempt, you didn't get it, and then you went back and you did a second one. That's what's happened, right? That's right. And the second attempt was in um, – the final time was 27 hours and 16 minutes. So I'm still a little way off. Um, 27 hours, 16 minutes. And the record is set by whom? And what's the time? Yes, record set by Trevor Wilson. Uh, he's an Australian, lives in Brisbane. Um, he's actually training to do Dakar um, for 2018. Lovely, really good, good guy. I get on well with Trevor. Um, and he's he did it on a 450 KTM race replica bike. Um, and it was his first time, you know, he just rocked up out there and did it. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what was his time? Uh, 23 hours, uh, 38 minutes. It sounds like an epic ride. So and your first run, you were both riding as just the two of you? Well, uh, for the record attempt, Stuart was doing that by himself. I happened to be out there at the time doing some other riding. So I was kind of the eyes and ears back at Birdsville, back at base to see uh, if anything's going wrong, um, sort of be sitting by the phone in case the sat phone calls me to, to say that there's a problem. Um, but Stuart was doing the record attempt by himself. We, we sort of take it in turns, Jim. So when Sarah does her thing, um, I'll sit tight and keep an eye on the spot tracker and just react if there's anything that needs to do. And, and, and Sarah's my base, so when, when I go out there, Sarah can – because you know that when, you, when, you, when something happens, you can make the call and they understand the, what needs to be organized very quickly right. and they understand the terrain. Um, we're lucky because we, go, we know a lot of people in that area now, so you can – whether it be RACQ, um, which is like um, the recovery unit here in Australia, you've got the police – um, and cattle stations too. So if you're in a very remote, although it's remote, you might have a cattle station that's 100 k's away from the breakdown. So things like that, that it might take you 27 hours from wherever you are in a city in Melbourne or Brisbane to get to that point. But you can sort of call on people and say, hey, look, are you going past such and such in the next 10 hours? If so, then there's somebody there that needs picking up. So, But if, if there was some sort of emergency, you can be evacuated by air. You could, yeah. Birdsville has a very good airport, and that's not bad. They're 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 good people to know. Peak uh, pilots, uh, like I say, these these cattle stations are lot millions of acres, so they do their mustering with helicopters and and airplanes, like like craft. So it's always worth knowing people like that to to say, hey, look, this is the situation. Can you assist? It's worth uh, keeping in mind, though, if you're in the middle of the Simpson Desert. There's no, not many places that an aeroplane can actually land. And uh, so if you injure yourself in the middle of the Simpson Desert, you've probably got a very rough and painful ride out by car before you can get in an aeroplane to be sent to hospital. There's no helicopters? Well, because of the distances, the helicopters would struggle to get to some of the places out there. However, they, I believe that there's been a couple of helicopters uh rescue people out of the desert, but it just depends on the location. 
you start out at Birdsville, and then Stuart, you take off on your uh, your bike by yourself on the CCM 450, and you make an attempt. What sort of speeds are you doing? Uh, well, I set off that night. It was nine o'clock. We tied it in to do a charity night at the Birdsville Bakery. Uh, in hindsight, it wasn't the ideal time, um, and that's why I made the changes for the second attempt, which was more, more successful. The the first run, you're sort of leaving out of town at you know, doing 100, 110, and they've just graded that road all the way to Big Red, so you can get good speed, but you're just being wary of kangaroos and emus and whatever else that might jump out. Cattle, one of the big problems in that area is cattle, because um, they're dark, they're black as well, so <laughs> they're a bit tricky to see sometimes. Um, once you get onto the QAA line after Big Red, you're probably only doing, there's 100 Ks there of good dunes, they're big, they're, big, they're 35, 40 metres big tall but they're in a straight line so they're quite easy to negotiate and i've got from you're probably doing 60 70 80 k's an hour um through that area but then after that uh to knoll's track from popple corner to knoll's track to heaven ever track it's really twisty gnarly and that's that's probably the most difficult area to negotiate through you you didn't do well as far as you were concerned in time because you didn't beat the record. So then what did you do? Well, we went for a ride. Me and Sarah went for a ride for five days up the Hay River, which was another gnarly, difficult track. <laughs> um, and uh, my mind was just I, – I couldn't let it go. It was just eating me up a bit. And I didn't want to say too much to Sarah because I knew it is quite stressful. When you're doing these things, it is very stressful on on your partner. Um so I thought to myself, well, I'll just we'll go away for five days and see things how things go. And we actually finished up at Popple Corner. When you come down Hay River, it finishes at Popple Corner. Now I had fuel buried there, and I sort of we were camping on the dune next to this fuel. And I'm thinking to myself, I couldn't sleep that night. It was also almost a full moon, and I was I was up looking at when when the the first light comes, when the sun actually breaks the horizon on that dune. So I'm sort of calculating time and distance to do stuff. I've got fuel here, but it's been out here nine months. So what I could do was take fuel from a DR650, had a 25-litre safari tank on it, that I could extract 10 litres from my fuel tank, put it in a fuel bladder and leave it here for the next second run. To get me home, I could use the fuel that I buried there nine months ago, put that in the DR because DRs will run on anything, and – Sarah's fast asleep and I'm, I'm wide awake working all this stuff out. And I thought, right, the only thing I've got to do now is is ask, is to sort of run this idea faster again, you know. And, and the question is, Sarah, what <laughs> so, do you say when you, when you wake up in the morning and Stuart's, you know, bringing this plan to you? Well, for me, when he mentioned it, when he said, what do you think about me doing another attempt – I kind of had to take a big, long, deep breath and uh, try and forget about, you know, all the the stress and the worry and everything that occurs when you're sitting back at base watching this happen and knowing that he's out there overnight for – he hasn't slept, you know, for two days basically, uh, wondering what's going wrong. It's really hard to forget all of that stress and worry. So I knew that he wanted to do it. I knew that it was going to come up again as – as an option. So I kind of just had to take a long, deep breath and um, support him through it, really. It was, you know, I know what it feels like when you really, really badly want to do something and when you're driven and 
I'd hate for someone to take an opportunity away from me. So to me, for me, it was just the only option was to support him through it and, and say that it's okay and I'll be here and I'll watch his spot tracker and, you know, I'll help as much as possible, service the bike, get it right, get everything ready that you need to get ready. And, um, yeah, that was really the only option. So when you're sitting back at, at base, you, what do you, you've got the spot tracker you mentioned already, which you, you pretty much need internet access for that. Yeah. So when I'm at, I was at Birdsville and we have internet access at Birdsville these days, which is really good. And, uh, as soon as Stuart leaves on the bike, I basically didn't sleep for that whole 24 hours either. I was pretty much on, on my phone, on the internet to, um, to follow where he was at and when he stopped for fuel or stopped for this and stopped for that for longer than 10 minutes, I could see that the spot tracker was stopped at one location and tried not to worry too much about it, thinking that he was probably just refueling or fixing a flat tyre or something like that. Uh, but, yeah, the having that internet access and knowing what's going on every 10 minutes where his location is certainly eases your mind a little bit. What about a sat phone? Uh, Stuart carries a sat phone as well, and really it's only for emergencies. Um, yeah, yeah. I keep the sat phone in my tank bag. I have a medical whistle strapped to it as well. Um, I have, for the Garmin, I have um, two batteries for that, so I can run pretty much my Garmin's for 48, 50 hours. Um, and that's all vital stuff, you know. That just all sits in the tank, tank bag, and I only sort of pull that out. Um, I made the call on the first run coming back. I sort of got across, refueled, came back and got as far as Noel's track. I probably had another 150, 200 Ks to go, but physically you, you were absolutely burnt out to a point where you can't stand up, um, that you're just constantly dropping the bike and, and able to, to, to lift it, to lift the bike up. So I called Sarah that night and said, look, don't want to cause any panic or anything. I'm, I'm all right. But, I'm physically burnt out. Uh, I've missed the time for the 24 hours. It's now 10 o'clock at night. Mm. I'll, um, I've just pulled off the track and I'll sleep here for to the morning. Um, so when it was first light, it'll be easier for me to, I'll, one, I'll build my strength up a bit. I can see the dunes because it was really hard to see those dunes coming back that night. Um, and then come in and I should be there about midday tomorrow. So, um, that was a hard thing to do because I hate having to make that call, but it was the right thing to do at the time. And, uh, I just slept, I don't, I don't carry any sleeping equipment with me. So you just keep your gear on. I kept the helmet on, made a fire and slept by the fire. What do you make the fire for? To keep warm. It was freezing cold. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was to, the to keep something away yeah. from you. So you, that you're talking about that. That's the first run that you did. Yeah. 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 So what so, happened with the second run? The second run was um, really what I did was I talked to uh, Trevor and I said, look, what am I doing wrong? And, um, or how can I improve certain things? And the problems I had, I was describing and he made some suggestions. So it was really building up your carbohydrates, uh, making sure that your body is fueled. It's like a train, you know, you've constantly have to shovel fuel and coal into it to keep working. Um, also to stand up, uh, once you're standing up, because any, any second you're looking to sit down because the dunes are just relentless and the, the moguls in them, 
your body is just getting shockwaved all the time. So once you're sat down, that sort of eventually, you know, sort of um, exaggerates that. Mm-hmm. And so I was learning to stand up and put myself in a position where I was burning less fuel uh, from my own body um, to put better lights on the bike, to go on a night where it was brighter with the moon um, and also to manage the fatigue and not stop for so long, to make the stops shorter. So when I when I set off, it was 4 o'clock in the morning, sorry, 3, 3 o'clock in the morning, and yeah, that was just – there was nobody there but just me and Sarah. It was at the um, just outside the pub, so it was a pretty lonely set off. Hmm. Um, I'll just say as well, Jim, it's terrifying when you leave there to go out and get to, and you see that first June at forty meters. It's terrifying. I bet. Um, and for the first, but you've just got to push past through all of that fear and get, and, and it's like a job. You just get in the groove of it and say, look, just get your head down and keep going, keep going, keep going. And after a while, you forget what you're doing, where you are, and you're just – you're trying to say to yourself, enjoy it. Just enjoy it, you know. So you're pushing past through all of these things. And I had a real smooth run. I got to Popple Corner in about two and a half hours, two hours, 45 minutes. I couldn't believe it. Um, and I thought the sun's not even up. I was predicting to be here for the sun so I get a, an easier run to Noel's track. So I cracked on – I refueled, put 10 litres in, had a few bananas – and carried on, and I got to Noel's track just before first sunlight. And I thought, crikey, that's the hardest That's the hardest part of it all done. And then everything after that was really plain sailing. But it's, ju- it's just being strict with yourself to say, stop. the only time you're stopping is to put a banana in your mouth and put 10 litres in the fuel tank, and you just go. You just ham on the hammer all the way through. Why a banana? Carbohydrates. Uh, it was it was suggested to me to eat. So I was I, I bought every banana I could in Birdsville. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought it would have been something like a you know like a like a power bar or something like that. <laughs> well, they they reckon that nature's and, and Red Bull as well. I used on the Red Bull. I only had a couple of cans of that. Well, hang on. And, you started um, out saying something about nature, and then you went to Red Bull. <laughs> you blew that out of the water. <laughs> I know, I know. But yeah, it's it's and water. So Sarah lent me her Camelback, and that that makes a huge help too. It's just sipping away. Um, but the thing is, you're stopping for a pee, you know, and you're thinking, I'm 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 killing time here, but I need to go. Right. So you're just constantly um, on the hammer and, and going through from Perny Bore, well, from Riggs Road, you've pretty much done it. And I got there in about eight hours. I thought, this is going good. So I just pumped up the tires because it's quite rocky. So I'll go, the pressure's about nine to 10 psi on both front and rear. So I have just a bicycle pump. So I just get, get the thing. I've got about 22 in each one. And then I was doing about 125, 130 all the way through to Mount there. And just looking out for four-wheel drives because some of the dunes are very small and you want to – you're probably hitting them about 90, 100 and you get a bit of air off them. But you've got to be careful there's a four-wheel drive not coming the other way. So you, they've got a flag and usually I can hear them talking because they, they, they're always talking amongst themselves. There might be a convoy of three or four. On the radio, you mean? Yeah, they're on the two-way. You're all on the same channel, channel 10, um, and you can usually usually hear the chatter, and I, I, I'll just keep an eye out for them, or just if I slow down, I'll just say, look, solo cycle, heading west. And then they, they usually pull over to let you through. The first one will see the speed that you're going at, and he'll say to the other guys, look, there's a bike coming through here pretty quick. 
and um, they'll pull over, let you through. So what did you end up doing? How did you finish? Uh, we got to Mount Dare, refueled. Uh, took about 45 minutes to refuel and have something to eat and get the bike back, you know, uh, to transfer some of the equipment. And then shot out. I was doing pretty good and just really, I think fatigue caught me out and I come over a ridge and crashed. Um, mm. Come off about 80 Ks and made a bit of a mess of the bike. The, the actual switch panel for the kill switch was pushed in so the bike wouldn't start. The throttle was jammed. There was a few other things. I um, damaged my arm or cut my arm quite badly and on my hip. So I was lucky, very, very lucky not to have any broken bones. And I'd lost a side stand on the first run, so I couldn't put the bike up straight away. So there was a four-wheel drive coming and they'd seen what happened. So they came and said, look, if you can help pick the bike and hold it up right while I goes out, I just need to work out this kill switch business. Um, we got that going. The throttle was not sticking, but the main light wasn't working, just the spotties. So managed to stuff another banana in my mouth um, and thought, well, you know, I've got to go. So went in thinking and pretty dazed as well. Like I had to hit my head quite hard, so I was a bit dazed. So I was just sort of saying to myself, just ease off the hammer here a bit until you get to Perny Ball. And then, um, yeah, got the gaffer tape out because the, the fairing was a bit broken and the, the front mudguard was flapping about and catching the wheel. I thought at that point you would abandon the run and go back to Birdsville. No. The problem is, Jim, as well, that you, your mind is in a hell of a groove and it's just so determined and, and you're just – there's nothing that will get in your way to say you've got you to finish it unless you're just physically and utterly fatigued. Um, so the crash I saw was – Shit, that was lucky. <laughs> that was lucky. Um, the bike's still going. There's nothing to stop me, you know. Um, I didn't want to make the call to Sarah to sort of say what happened. I just sort of thought, well, these guys will probably go to Mount Dare and um, they'll probably relay the information to say, look, he's out of stack, but he's all right. Um, so it was just a case of continuing and, and, and getting it done. But and after that, it was really getting past all these really difficult tracks and the sun was setting and then getting into sort of night time. So it's about 10, 11 o'clock at night. Uh, and then you're really tired. And I got, I managed to get to Popple Corner um, where I had something to eat. You're also negotiating these uh, big salt lakes that are very difficult to get across if you don't, if you can't see the the hard pack. Because if you get off pace to them, you can get stuck. And, oh, they're uh, that's sort of dry with, with muddy patches? That's it. The mud's like super, super glue. And if um, on the first run I got caught in that and I was there for about half an hour fighting the bike trying to get that out of there. But um, that last stretch, uh, you get from Popple Corner to Birdsville is about 100k of dunes. It's called the QAA line. And that was like, that was hard. That was hard, man. That was like 100k was like, felt like a thousand because you're just absolutely tired. You're dropping the bike. You just want it to finish, you know. You're you're at the end of your tether with it, and uh, physically burnt out, and just and you know, it's cold too, you know. You're, you're you're freezing cold, and you've run out all your food, whatever's run out. So you just you're just running on empty to get back into Birdsville. So, what's your thought process now? Are, are you guys going to go and do this again? Well, I said to Sarah when I got into Birdsville, that's it. If I ever have a stupid, crazy idea like that again, stop me. But <laughs> since we've been back, I think just need to make some um, 
the the, the thing to, to do with the bike bike is uh, probably upgrade the suspension. Um, the, it's difficult to when you refuel in the bike. It's from the back of the bike, and it would be helped if it was at the front. Probably better lights. Those are the only sort of adjustments I've made to the bike. But to yourself, you've got to be super serious when you go into this. You've got to be to a level of fitness almost to an athlete, and you've really got to put the time and energy in to say, look. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to run. I'm going to do this. I'm going to put in. I'm going to be bike fit to a point where I've been riding a thousand k's at night on a regular basis before I even get there. I say the dedication towards it and um, is 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 hard. It's hard to keep that fitness up. Um, but when you do this, when you get this done, and you you if you do do it again and you you actually beat the time, what you get like a million dollars or something. Get nothing, Jim. Nothing. <laughs> Do you see the insanity here? I know. You might even get a snake bite. That's about it. Yeah. Um, Only a motorcyclist will listen to this story and go, "Yeah, I get it. I totally get it." <laughs> I think it's 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 just personal. It's just that personal achievement to say that somebody has has done something extraordinary, and you try to aspire. One, you love it. You love the, 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 the landscape. The, everything that's connected to The Simpson is difficult. There's no easy – it's the ultimate test for man and machine. And once somebody sets that bar, you sort of think about it and think, well, I'd like to challenge that. Maybe I could even get close to it. And then I think it does sort of put you in a bit of a – oh, no, it's – it's this one, like I say, once you start to analyze how you would do it um, and break it down at the beginning of it, it's, it's massive. It's like a massive mountain. How in the world is it ever going to be achieved? But once you break it down into increments, it's achievable. And you think, well, all right, now I know how it feels. And, and I know how it feels at this point, And I know what I need to do with tires and setup and all this sort of stuff. All I've got to do now is just chip away a little bit harder and it, and it will be there. Stay with us. We got a lot more to learn about the Simpson Desert. Do yourself a favor, drop by the IMS Products website and have a look at their ADV1 and their ADV2 pegs. Their, their website is www.imsproducts.com. And of course, they've got a full line of uh, pegs for adventure riders like you and I. Now, I've mentioned before about good foot peg design and how the width can't be added on all sides because it throws off the geometry of the peg. Well, there's even still more involved in the design of the IMS product's foot pegs. IMS uses what they call a watershed design, which means that built into the the design of these foot pegs are angles and surfaces that allow the mud and debris to fall away, meaning it just can't stick in there. And they've designed it that way. That's part of their design. That tells you how much thought has went into the design of the foot peg. And the other thing is IMS foot pegs all come with a lifetime warranty. Basically, they're they're saying that if um, you ever fracture or break the peg while you own it, IMS will replace it. No questions asked. That's pretty cool www.imsproducts.com. And of course, we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with IMS, if you just let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Road Dog Publications has just released In Search of Greener Grass by Graham Field. So this is a the new version. The, the Previously, the print version was not available in North America. To get it, you would have had to order it from the UK, and, and I think the shipping was kind of expensive. But now it's available in North America. It's available through Road Dog Publications and, and most major bookstores. 
And they're also currently working on uh, following up this title with Graham's other two books, Eureka and Different Natures, which should be available in the next couple of months. They've uh, also just released a book called Northeast by Northwest. That's by Mike Fitterling, the publisher himself. And coming up soon, too, will be Zoe Cano's third book about her recent travels in Baja. Now, Road Dog Publications has a slew of motorcycle books available, including th- uh, titles like Asphalt and Dirt by Aaron Heinrich, uh, Southern Escapades by Zoe Cano. A Short Ride in the Jungle by Antonia Bolingbroke-Kent, Beads in the Headlights by Isabel Dyson, and more. You can buy these books at the Road Dog website directly, www.roaddogpub.com. And of course, you can go to any major bookseller and and buy them as well. But I'd drop by their website to see what they've got, www.roaddogpub.com. And if you're dealing with Road Dog publications, be sure to drop our name when you talk with them, Adventure Rider Radio. Uh, well, Sarah, Sarah's done a fair bit of writing. Uh, when when she went out there, she you crossed you crossed by yourself. Uh, yeah. Well, I I uh, went out to Birdsville about two weeks before Stuart came up there, and um, I crossed the desert using different tracks. There's a there's about six different tracks that you can use to cross the desert, whether you go east to west or north to south. Would you say um, track? Is it a like a like a road track? Are we talking about? Or are we talking about a track on a GPS? Uh, well, it's it's in between. It's not a, a road. You wouldn't be able to get a, any two wheel drive car through there. You need a. Most people who go across are in fairly um, modified four wheel drives, so it's really a four wheel drive track um, or a yeah four wheel drive track is what we sort of call them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're because it's national park and that sort of thing. They're not maintained, so there's never a grader that goes through there to to flatten out the tracks or anything like that. So these tracks have been out there for about thirty years, and they're affected by erosion when it rains, um, and over summer when the desert's actually closed for three three months of the year, it just the sand pretty much almost washes away these tracks and. Um, so every year the, the tracks are changing. You have a, a rough – well, the the wheel tracks from the year beforehand are generally there and the first vehicles that go through sort of push the tracks through so you can see where you're going. And, um, yeah, so the, the tracks themselves are definitely four-wheel drive tracks. You wouldn't get anything less than a, a modified four-wheel drive through there. Um, but, there's yeah, there's a couple of different ones that I – Having been out there last year and I crossed on using the shortest route across, uh, which is the French line, um, I wanted to go and have a look elsewhere. And so I went further south uh, in the desert to areas where it's a bit more, you get a lot more wildlife down further south, a lot of camels, a lot of dingoes, um, a lot more bird life as well. And it's a lot more vegetated and the tracks are less used, I think, the and affected a lot affected by um, erosion because it's still the start of the season. When I was out there, it was only the Simpson Desert had only been opened for a month, uh, I think a month, and uh, yeah, about four weeks. So there hadn't been many vehicles through on these sort of less used tracks. Uh, so they were 
a few of them were quite eroded, a few areas were quite eroded, which was a bit dangerous and you really just have to slow down and take it easy because when you're out there by yourself, you know, it's a bit of self-preservation, I suppose. Um, so as far as we know, Jim, Sarah's the only lady who's who's done this, you know. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, and the year before, that. yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And the year before she rode from Mount Dare to Birdsville, uh, west to east, on her own. You know, never, that's never been done before. So she won't say it, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's, we've, as far as we're aware, there's no other lady rider who's done that unassisted and solo. You know. But uh, yeah, so I went across on the. From Birdsville, I took the, the same track that Stuart took to begin with, the QAA line, out to Popple's Corner. And then you sort of do a little bit of a dog leg a bit further south and I took the WAA line, is what it's called, uh, across to Mount Dare where I refuelled and had my first meal for four days, <laughs> first proper meal for four days. And then I turned around and went back into the desert and took yet another track further south um, and unfortunately, I was 70 kilometres from the, the main road and I had a flat battery. So I was so close to getting out um, that I had a bit of a breakdown, which was unfortunate, and had to make a call on the sat phone and organise um, to basically get a tow because there's no one out there to come past and jumpstart uh, on those tracks. They're just very little used. Um, I was going to ask if you were carrying a, a sat phone or, or, or if you had any sort of uh, emergency communication devices, but I guess it's kind of foolish. I mean, you, you'd, uh, anybody who goes into the Simpson Desert has to be carrying something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a couple of, I suppose there's a couple of ways that you can uh, get help in the Simpson Desert. One, everyone out there is using UHF Channel 10 with their radios. So if there's anyone in the area and you can get onto them via radio, then they can help. Um, the other one, I always carry my spot tracker with me whenever I go riding, especially if I'm riding by myself. Um, that's, the risk how, is that's, just how we, that's how we knew. That's how we knew Sarah was in trouble um, because of the spot tracker. Hmm. Um, and then I, I got a call from the the police in what was that? Oh, somewhere in Queensland. So Queensland yes. police rang and said, "This is the situation. We're going to pass you through to Sarah now." So. Yeah, but there's, a, there's a, a help me button on on the spot tracker. Why not just press that <laughs> instead? Like not the SOS, uh, but but the help button. Yeah, well, I did do that. Um, I think the thing is with the spot tracker, the help button. Um, I have it set up so it sends a text message to my parents, oh, and. Yeah what I've realized is that my parents kind of get really worried whenever that message comes through. I've had, there were a couple of years ago when I got bogged on a muddy road and I couldn't get out and I was going to have to stay there for a few days and wait for it to dry out, which was perfectly fine. But um, I thought I'd send them a message just to let them know that something was wrong and they freaked out and they <laughs> called the police then. And this time, I when I had the flat battery, I pressed the help message, and apparently Stuart got a call from my mum saying, "What's going on? You know, Sarah stopped. She's pressed the help message. You know, obviously something's gone wrong." Um, but really, my my intention by pressing that by pressing the help button and by calling 
you know, the emergency services triple zero here in Australia was just to let people know that I was out there. It wasn't an emergency. I didn't need to get evacuated out. I had a flat battery, but I had enough food and water to last me for, you know, two days, three days. So it was just a matter of notifying people to let them know that if things, if no one comes past in the next 24 hours, 48 hours, then I am going to need some help. And I don't really want to, you know, wait till the last minute till I've got no water left and all of a sudden it's a rush for everyone mm. to get out there. Yeah. I'd prefer just to, uh, because I work for the emergency services, I kind of know that if you can prevent it being an emergency, then that's always a better situation. So I made the call early just to let the local policeman know that um, I'm out there with a flat battery and may or may not be able to get help and to let Stuart know as well that, I'm out there and this is a situation. The, the spot tracker has the um, the check-in button and then it has the tracking button, the help button, and the SOS button. I think if you've got one of the Gen 3s. Um, and, and that's the nice thing is you can set that up for different things. But I guess the thing with the help button is, clearly, I mean, you, you, you're realizing this too, is that it's probably not good to have it go to your parents who wouldn't know how to deal with that. Uh, yeah, we've, you, we've stopped that, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, that won't the, be in the future. Right. Because yeah, you want to set it up with someone who knows that, you know, I think on mine I have it programmed to say, this is just a, a thing I'm, I'm broken down. I'm going to need assistance, but it's no panic. Everything's fine. Just something, you know, that is delaying me from going anywhere. And I, I think that's really important with this sort of thing that you set up in advance. But one of the problems is, and maybe you ran into this, is setting it up and you don't use it you, you know, for so long. You sort of forget, well, how did I set that up again? Who did I have it calling? Who did I have it texting or uh, sending messages to? The good thing to, yeah. to run over all the time, isn't it? Yeah, I think before every trip, it's yeah. probably a yeah. good idea to, to figure out who you've got set up as the emergency contacts and the normal contacts. Um, for just the the normal check-in okay messages and that sort of thing as well. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Hey, when you break down like that, when your battery's flat and you call emergency services, do they look at you like you're a pain? You know, you're this person who's out joyriding in the desert and, and it's creating problem, or is it just sort of um, a way of the outback? People break down, you go help them. Um, I think there's an understanding out there in the outback that things happen out of your control really and people are always coming together to help one another so certainly in the outback people you know the the gentleman from the roadhouse Barnsey who ended up coming out in a vehicle to pick me up because there was no one coming past that could jump start the bike um he was he didn't have an issue coming out to get me it wasn't a problem whatsoever with him he was happy to you know, it was 270 kilometres that he needed to come out. That was wow. the closest town to me was 270 kilometres away. So he had to come out uh, down the Birdsville track to pick me up, and he didn't have an issue with that. That's 270k um, and then 270k back. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess if you if you live in an area like that, you get used to the long distances, but that's a lot of driving, <laughs> a lot of wear and tear, and a lot of fuel. That had to be expensive for you. Well, I have um, roadside assistance. Um, I don't know if what you guys have over there, but RACV is like roadside assistance. So you buy a membership each year and they'll come you for a certain amount of breakdowns and a certain amount of towing. And I was really lucky that with Stuart's help, he was able to contact RACV and make sure that the tow was included in my membership. 
Um, and I think there were probably a few words, a few firm words having to be said to. Well, they, they, sure, they didn't want to, they were sort of saying, where is it exactly? So I told them and they said, well, that's not a two-wheel drive road. It's four-wheel drive. And I said, yeah. They said, well, that's we, we don't go out to four-wheel drive tracks. And then I said, fair enough. So I got off the phone and I read through all their disclaimer and whatnot and I rang them back and said, there's nowhere here that suggests otherwise. So you need to put a job number in and go and get her. And so it was just really a case of getting that getting that through. They're trying to get out of it. It's going to cost them like $3,000 yeah. to recover. Oh, wow. And they, really? they would do That's that. yeah. more than I thought. Um, can a foreigner get that if somebody came to visit and they wanted to, to go and explore? Can they get that same program? I'm just thinking for people who come from another country, if they're if they're coming to you know as part of their trip, they they want to go to Australia, and certainly you know are attracted by the Simpson Desert, or even if it wasn't you know that extreme, um, would they be able to sign up and, and benefit from that? Because because that's huge. I mean, if they're gonna if you're gonna pay three thousand dollars to be rescued, that is a big chunk of money. It's it's five thousand uh, from Mount Dare. The recovery from Mount Dare was five grand. But, yeah, see, I was I was actually outside the Simpson Desert boundary, and that's why it was only going to be three thousand dollars. But if you're in the Simpson Desert, it'll cost you five thousand dollars to get your vehicle towed. And, and what about search and rescue? Is it, will search and rescue come out to to get you, and do they charge for it? If you, if you press that SOS button, you know, then the cavalry come. But and yeah. also the the cavalry. I mean the. I was talking to the local policeman in Birdsville to see what, you know, what situations where they've had to go out into the desert to, to retrieve people or to find people. And they had a situation where someone sent, uh, set off their SOS spot tracker or an EPIRB or something similar. And so they've given, they've got no information whatsoever. They've got no way of contacting this person. They're smack bang in the middle of the Simpson desert. Um, and, what actually happens is if they don't have a way of contacting someone, they have to presume the worst. So they sent an aeroplane from Adelaide, which is a cost of about $80,000. They sent this aeroplane out and dropped a container of supplies. So it had a sat phone. They dropped a care water. package, Jim. I would have been out there for a week. I would have been going, Maybe it's got a tent in there to get away from these flies and a couple of cans of Red Bull. I'd be there set up with a fire and, yeah. Do they put yeah. beer in that in that package when they drop it? Unfortunately, no. Really? no. Australians, I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but they, you know, they do send out these planes and it's at a cost to the, to the government of $80,000. And then they send the local policeman and ambulance by road and it, probably take them 24 hours in fact it took them yeah 24 hours to get out there to see this person who'd set up set off an epirb and the person wasn't in a you know in a bad state they weren't in a bad um bad way uh but they'd spend all this money so you know the search and rescue stuff they do have things in place to get supplies out to you and also they normally drop a sat phone so that you can actually contact the emergency services and let them know what the emergency is because I think that's the biggest thing for the emergency services is is this you know someone who's exhausted or someone who's accidentally set off their spot tracker or is this someone who's just rolled their four-wheel drive and there's broken limbs and people who are in 
you know, a life threat, an immediate life threat, and we need to get out there ASAP. With with an EPA, with a spot tracker, no one really knows. So you you mentioned that Stuart, you carry the sat phone. Sarah, do you carry a sat phone, or is it strictly the the tracker with you? Uh, normally, it's just the tracker. But I was lucky enough for Stuart to lend me his sat phone when I went across the desert by myself. Um, I was sort of in two minds about using it the first time I went across because I thought, well, you know, I don't want to resort. I don't want to have to think about that worst case scenario where you're going to have to use a spot. Uh, sorry, the satellite phone. But I do realise now how valuable they are, and even though they're expensive, they it certainly probably I would say in an emergency a better resource than the spot tracker. Yeah, definitely. The, the two-way communication is paramount if you're if you're trying to work through an emergency, and, and it can certainly take something um, and and prevent it from being blown up, like you said, into something that's huge and end up spending all kinds of money and and people power trying to uh, to get to you to help you when it's something much less uh, severe. But the, the, with the sat phone, it's strictly the cost. And have you have you looked at inReach, or is inReach available for you? Uh, the inReach. They are available here. Um, I haven't looked into it too much because when they first came out, I already had bought my spot tracker. Um, Garmin, Garmin's doing a, a new Garmin where you can send texts through there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well Garmin bought InReach, and the, and that's that unit they're bringing out now is is for InReach. Right. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually quite interested in that because that works as basically a sat phone and a spot tracker at the same time like in the one unit by the sound of it. Yeah, but it's um, not voice though. It's only text. It's you, you're sending text messages back and forth. Yeah, okay. But back to what you said just a few minutes ago about it being the ultimate test for man and machine. Let's talk about machine. Let's let's give CCM a free ad here. Did they give that bike to you for the ride? No, it was a demo. They, they had about 13 bikes um, in a shipment come to Australia. And this particular one was last year's model. It was a demo. And I, I got to know the guys in Melbourne, uh, the importers from Gladstone in Queensland, and I'd met John a couple of times. And I said, "Look, I've got this crazy idea. Would you would you be able to, you know, lend us the bike to do it?" And um, they loved the idea and said, "Look, yeah, let us know. You know, if we can work towards it and, and provide the bike when you get close to do it, would would love you to ride that one." So, so you rode their bike. That's the bike you smashed. Yeah, yeah. I hope they know already. <laughs> well, we're getting there, and I think what it's going to cost—it's going to cost me some money, Jim. You know what I found? What I found with this stuff—it always costs me money. That's because you keep crushing people's bikes. You know, <laughs> that's always the, the, the worry, isn't it? When you get something supplied like that, is that responsibility? I mean, if it's your bike, it's one thing you can take it, but when it's somebody else's, that adds a whole new level of responsibility. It does. Look, the, the, those bikes are tough. Hey, when you drop them in the sands, you can drop it. Nothing will ever break on them. It's 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 a really rough and tough, easy bike to pick You're up. You're talking and, the CCM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's been a brilliant bike and really dished out. You know, it's copped some really difficult crashes. But this particular one, it was um, like big river rocks. You know, and it was the ground was hard. When I come over the top, I just you know when you know you think, oh my mm. god, I'm in trouble here. And I, and I got the front wheel into a groove and I, I managed to bring it out and get it out and I thought to a mo- for a moment, split moment, I'm all right. But then the rear caught it and, and just went 180 and just spat me off. 
when when these bikes are provided, you you do like I do Babium, but I think with the sometimes, um, you know, it's just that split moment where things can go wrong, and you've just got to be responsible and own up to it and say, well, look, whatever we need to do to to get it rectified, I'll, I'll do. So the the bike is a great bike. You said maybe upgrade the suspension. Um, that's about it. That's all you'll change other than the fuel um, inlet. Yeah, the fuel itself to do the entire cross was like some of the other guys were using like forty seven liters. Uh, this this bike was using thirty. So the fuel efficiency, yeah, we I took it to the big desert and and give it a good thrashing through there because you try to run the bike as hot as you can to work out exactly what you can get from a twenty liter tank. Um, and then you can confidently go into any desert and say, well, look, I know all I'm going to need is a is a 10-litre bladder to uh, to get the job done. So then you then, for, for fuel efficiency, I've never come across a bike so so good. It's got a plastic tank. Uh, you fuel it from the back and it feeds through to the front. Um, and the engine is set. Like, it just started so confidently, like complete. This bike had gone four times across the Simpson Desert without a hitch, you know, that's incredible uh, build quality to CCM. The BMW 450 engine is is nice and easy to rev. Um, found it very – never got stuck. You know, there was, there was very rare moments where you were struggling to get up the tune. Um, we used Mitus. We used um, Maxxis uh, heavy-duty tubes, which I didn't change them. They'd done four crossings without a puncher. And also the Mitus um, – E09 tires as well, which we didn't change them either. We just run them on the four trips too. As far as preparation for the bike before you go, did, did you do anything special to it? We we serviced it at the police station. <laughs> that wasn't Sarah serviced it by the sounds of it. Yeah, look, Sarah knows more about servicing bikes than I do. Um, I'm 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 not the world's greatest mechanic, and we sort of pulled it apart. We had the spares with us that needed to do the service, so we sort of pulled it apart in the in the car park there, and um, just f- fumbled our way through with it. Really got it got it running really sweet. The engine only takes uh, 1.1 liters. Yeah, 1.1 liters of oil. So we managed on the second run. All we did on the second run was drop the oil and put new oil in, hmm. and wire up the the spotlights. Yeah, so we had to bodgy up and um, wire up the spotlight. So we went down to Birdsville Roadhouse, bought the the wires, mm. connections. Mm. Yeah, and the the uh, guy who works at the Birdsville Roadhouse, uh, Peter Barnes, he helped us out with a little bit because neither of us had really wired up lights before. So we were sort of in the middle of the desert or in the middle of the outback with not many tools and not much of an idea about what we were doing. Uh, but between asking Barnsey about what we should do and, and a quick call to my, my dad, who used to be an electrician, we sort of managed to figure out the wiring and put a switch in and a fuse in and everything. And surprisingly, they they made it back. They still worked when you after you did the double crossing. So I think it was a surprise to both of us that they even worked in the first place. <laughs> Well, I think despite the hardships to be expected for desert riding, um, the, the two of you have managed to spark an interest, at least for some of us, in riding in the desert. Sarah, Stuart, great to talk. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jim. 
And that was Stuart Ball and Sarah Taylor from Australia. If you'd like to find out more about The Great Australian Ride and maybe have an opportunity to go on it, drop by their website, www.thegreataustralianride.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course, you, the listener. Thank you very much. Remember, you can download all our episodes of Adventure Rider Radio for free. Just drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and go ahead and listen. And you can also download our Raw show as well, ARR Raw, again, at the website. Click on the Raw button. And anywhere you download podcasts, you should be able to find both shows. If you've got a place that you can't find it, certainly let us know. And if you're on Facebook, which you probably are, consider dropping by our Facebook page and giving it a like. Just search for Adventure Rider Radio. My name's Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. Hi, this is Elspeth Beard, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 